0: Well, we're in Ephesians chapter 2 today, so if you have your Bibles, you may want to open them up to Ephesians chapter 2, or I will assume if you're on your cell phone, you're not on eBay, you're on your Bible because you have the Bible app. But we're going to go ahead and read through these first few verses of Ephesians chapter 2, and then we'll come back and take a look at them in closer detail. So the Apostle Paul writes, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. We've been saying that uh, so far in this epistle to the Ephesians, Paul has been talking about what he prays, what he hopes for the Ephesian Christians. And one of the things that he hoped for was that they might come to know God, and not merely to know about Him, but to know Him personally, to enter into a life-giving relationship with Christ. And Paul makes it very clear the reason we need this is because you and I are in a struggle, we are in a battle. And that battle is not just a battle against the world, it is a battle against the world, the flesh, and Paul says the devil as well. And any one of these opponents in and of themselves is far too powerful for us. But by the grace of God we can triumph. Sometimes when you're engaged in a, a great battle or sometimes when you're engaged in something that is long and drawn out, a struggle, it's helpful to remember how far you've come. I've never run a marathon, I have no desire to run a marathon, but those who have run marathons will tell you that one of the things that can keep you going the whole way to the end when you're running 26 miles is the knowledge that you've already come 22. And mile 22 you really just want to sit down, you want to throw in the towel, you want to give up, you really want to sit down and cry. But when you realize that you've come 22 miles already, that can be a tremendous incentive. There are stars in your crown. Thank Thank you. you. (laughs) It's a tremendous incentive. Teacher's pet, but pet (laughs) nonetheless. Tremendous incentive to keep on going, to realize how far you've already come. Well, there is a sense in which that is what the Apostle Paul is reminding us of here in Ephesians chapter 2. He's reminding us, of how far God has already brought us. And with, armed with that knowledge then, he believes that we can press on to the end. I don't know how many of you are fans of old movies. I almost hesitate to describe this as an old movie. But some of you may recall back in the 1970s there was a film that came out that starred Barbara Streisand and Robert Redford. The movie was entitled The Way We Were. Uh, It's rated as one of the most romantic movies in all of cinema history. So men, next Valentine's Day, if you're looking for something, if you really want to impress your wife, you want to rent or you want to buy The Way We Were, Robert Redford and Barbara Streisand, it is a very wistful, nostalgic look at the past, at the way we were. Well, here in Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul gives us a picture of the way you and I were, spiritually speaking. But unfortunately, it is not a particularly wistful, nor nostalgic, nor positive view. There's nothing romantic about what the Apostle Paul has to say here in the first three verses of Ephesians chapter 2, but it is important for us. It's important for us in terms of whether we will press on to the end, and it is important for us in terms of whether or not we will really understand the grace and the mercy of God in Christ Jesus. Let me begin by saying today that there are basically three views. Three views of man's spiritual condition. Of humanity's spiritual condition in terms of our relationship with God. Three views. The first view is the view that mankind, spiritually speaking, is healthy whole and well, that mankind is fine just the way he is, and that humanity is basically on the upswing. As I'm sure you're all aware, in 1859, Charles Darwin published a famous book entitled On the Origin of Species. It was a biological theory for the, not the origin, but really the development of life. And basically what he said was that natural selection um, worked out in life the survival of the fittest, what would happen was that those lesser or weaker organisms would eventually be weeded out, and the stronger ones would survive, and basically there was this progression. It was a very positive theory of biological development. In the 19th century, many people took that provisional biological theory, and they applied it to almost every aspect of life. It became known as social Darwinism. It a great book written by Richard Hofstadter, who was a professor for many years at Columbia, and the book is entitled American Thought and Social Darwinism, or something like that, Social Darwinism and American Thought. It's a wonderful book. It's very insightful if you want to understand late 19th, early 20th century history and how people viewed things. But basically the idea here was that humanity Not just biological organisms, but societies as a whole were on the upswing. We were moving, we were progressing, we were going up, and we were becoming better. Uh, This idea was first articulated by people like Herbert Spencer and Thomas Malthus and others. But it became very popular in the early part of the 20th century. Uh, You'll recall that World War I was sometimes referred to as the Great War, it was also referred to as the what? the war that would end all wars. That was the belief, you see, that humanity was getting better and better, and yes, there had been conflicts the 19th century, and certainly in Europe and other places, been characterized by great conflicts. Whole continents had erupted in armed conflict, but the belief was that eventually humanity, as we progressed, as we continued to evolve socially and otherwise, eventually we would do away with these things. And so World War I was going to be the last great war. It would be the war that would end all wars. This was a very popular way of thinking in the early part of the 20th century. It's not particularly popular today. It's fallen out of fashion in academic circles in large measure because of what happened in the Second World War. World War I, as you probably know, ended in 1918. Less than 20 years later we were engulfed in another great world war. World War I had not ended all the wars. The whole globe was engulfed in conflict, and suffering, and death. And particularly in academic circles, this whole notion of social Darwinism, the idea that we are getting better and better, it fell out of favor in the wake of the Holocaust, in the wake of the rise of communism, and the tremendous suffering that resulted from those two things. So while there was the view that mankind is basically well, spiritually speaking, I think most of us looking at the world in which we live today would probably agree, mankind is not particularly well. The world is not necessarily getting better and better. I don't remember... How many of you from the 19, uh, growing up, perhaps in the 1940s, remember when you went to the movie theater? They used to begin movies with these newsreels. Do you remember them? Uh, Some of them were put out by the Time Life Corporation. They were called the March of Time. And they would always begin with this stirring drum roll and the blast of a trumpet, and then you would get these scenes from all over the world which depicted great events taking place across the globe. And even during World War II, when there were sometimes military setbacks, nevertheless, the the viewer was left with this impression that the world was really getting better and better and better. There There was confidence. There was hopefulness. I think if we look at the world today, most people would not agree that the world is necessarily getting better or that humanity is necessarily getting better. We realize that human beings are capable of great good, but we are also capable of what? Great evil. Man's inhumanity to man. So most people today, when it comes to spiritual matters, would say that mankind is not healthy. We are not well. We are not whole. We are sick. Humanity is sick. There's something wrong with us. There is a fault line that runs through the human soul. And yet, it's not as bleak as it might sound. Because after all, if a person is sick, even physically or spiritually sick, as long as there is still life in the body, there's the chance of what? There's the chance of recovery, isn't there? There's the chance that perhaps we can improve. There's the chance that perhaps we can survive whatever we're going through. It doesn't matter how bleak the circumstances may be. As I said, as long as there is breath in the body, as long as there is a brain wave, there is hope. What's the motto of the state of South Carolina? While I breathe, I hope. That's the idea. And so there are some who would insist that even if the human being is not spiritually whole and healthy, and even if we are spiritually sick, there nevertheless is the hope, the chance, be it ever so small, of spiritual recovery. The key, many people would say, is finding the right antidote. As with any illness, it's not just diagnosing the problem. The other thing that you need to do is what? You need to prescribe a cure, and many people would say that's the problem for humanity. Spiritually speaking, we're not whole. We are sick, maybe very sick, but as long as we can find the right combination, we can heal ourselves. Generally speaking today, I think most people would insist that the right combination of cures is education, opportunity, and resources. That's what many of us have been raised to believe, that the answer to most of society's problems is education. Give people a very fine education, and the more educated they are, the better they will be able to resolve their problems, to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. And not just education. Education alone, most people I think would agree, is not enough. So you've got to provide people with lots of opportunities as well. And of course in order to have a good education and in order to have opportunities, you've got to have what? Resources. But if you can get these three things together, if you can provide people with all of their problems, all of their faults, spiritually, morally, emotionally, whatever it may be, if you can provide them with this right combination of education, opportunity, and resources, perhaps humanity can pull itself out of the mess in which it finds itself. It's a very popular notion in our culture today, particularly in a culture of self-esteem. And don't get me wrong, all three of those things are very important. But just take a look at Western culture sometime. We are among the most educated people in all of history. We have more opportunities today, particularly young people. Young people today have more opportunities than you and I, certainly people in a former generation, could even imagine. The opportunities that I had, my grandfather could never imagine. The opportunities that my children have, my father could never have imagined. And I'm sure the opportunities that their children will have, I cannot even imagine. we provided them with the very finest of education. we provided them with the best opportunities. And my goodness, we live in the most affluent culture in the history of the world. You may not think of yourself as necessarily affluent. But compared to the vast majority of people in the world, you are a very affluent people. We all are. The very fact that you and I can turn on a spigot in the morning and have clean water shows how affluent we are. And so here we are, the best education, the best opportunity, the best resources, and yet look at the world in which we live. Are we necessarily getting better and better? Certainly, we're making advances in some areas of science and technology. No one can deny that. But is humanity any better? Are we any kinder? Are we any more generous to one another? Are we any more grace-filled? My goodness, we seem to be living on the brink of a, of a nuclear holocaust, it seems. The situation that's taking place in North Korea. We just had missile strikes in Syria night before last. We live in a world that very much looks like a powder keg. And so, even though we want to believe that we are merely sick, and if we could just find the right combination, we could cure ourselves, the reality is it isn't so. So, what's the third option? If humanity is not in its spiritual condition well and not merely sick, what is the third option? Well, the third option is that it's much worse than that. We're not just sick, we're dead. Spiritually speaking, we are dead. That's how Paul describes it. Look again at Ephesians chapter two, he says, but as for you, you were dead in the trespasses and the sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by, the na- by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. It's not just that you and I are spiritually sick. Now, we sometimes sing about that even in our hymns, sin-sick and sorrow-worn, but the biblical picture of the human condition, spiritually speaking, is much more serious. Paul says we are dead in our trespasses, and in our sins in which we used to live. Now, someone might pause for a moment and say, well, what does Paul mean by that? He describes us as being dead in our trespasses and in our sins. We were sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived. Now, you're either dead or you're alive. Paul says we once walked among them. Well, how can anybody walk when they're dead? There is a genre of horror films that is very popular in the world today. I, I, I confess to you, I do not understand it. But there's zombie horror films. Have you ever heard of that sort of thing? People are fascinated by this sort of thing. Zombie. used to be, The only thing I knew of was a zombie was a drink that you used to be able to get back in the, in the '50s or '60s. It was a drink called the zombie. But what's a zombie? Anybody know? It's the living Dead. It's the idea that a person has died, the body has started to decay, and through some power, demonic or otherwise, they have been animated. And they're walking around, and they're spreading their contagion wherever they go. It's the most horrifying thought imaginable. When Paul says, but as for you, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, Paul is basically saying that spiritually seeking, mankind is not healthy, mankind is not merely sick. Mankind, spiritually speaking, that is, in terms of his relationship with God, is dead. We are dead men and women walking. We are spiritually dead, physically alive. That is, we're walking around, we're transacting business, we're going about our daily lives, but in terms of our relationship with God, we are dead. Dead. now this is very important because what Paul is emphasizing here is the fact that as human beings you and I are not just physical beings Paul is emphasizing the fact that as human beings made in the image of God there is another aspect to us just besides our body and that is our soul or our spirit Human beings are made up of more than just flesh and blood. Now, very oftentimes, that's the only thing we tend to pay attention to, is our physical selves. But let me tell you something, it is the physical self that passes away. It's the spiritual self, the soul, that goes on forever. This is one of the reasons why Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, education, opportunity, resources, but he loses what? He loses his soul. This is why Jesus said, Store not up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not corrupt and where thieves do not break and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Jesus' way of emphasizing, you see, that you and I are physical beings, but we are also spiritual beings. We live in the here and now, but we were created for eternity. Now, there's some debate among theologians as to whether or not we are really made up of two parts or three parts. It really doesn't matter, but I'm just, for the sake of entertaining you this morning, I'm going to relate to you the difference between what is the dichotomous and the trichotomous view of the human being. The dichotomous view is basically the idea that you and I are made up of an eternal part, which is the soul or the spirit, And those who hold to the dichotomous view combine those two, soul and spirit, together, basically say that those two terms are interchangeable and we're made up of the physical. The trichotomous view basically emphasizes the same thing but says that we're not just made up of two parts, we're made up of three parts. They make a distinction, these theologians, between the soul and the spirit. And you can see this distinction primarily in the Old Testament. That is to say that there is the soul, which is the the center of our moral being. There is the spirit, which is what you might call our God consciousness, that part of us that has the ability to have a relationship with our creator. And then there is the physical, the body. Either way, whether you subscribe to the dichotomous or the trichotomous view, the idea here is that we are not just flesh and blood. And the part of us that is meant for eternity is the soul, the one part that we oftentimes ignore. Now, what's interesting about this is that Paul makes it very clear that that eternal part of us has been affected. In fact, he says all of us has been affected as a consequence of the fall. Keep your finger there in Ephesians 2 and flip back, if you will, for just a moment to Genesis chapter 3. I want you to take a look at this. Genesis chapter 3, as you know, recounts the story of the fall of mankind. It's a familiar story. God placed Adam and Eve in the midst of the garden. That's how the story goes. And he gave them a command that they were to work the garden and that they could eat of any tree in the midst of the garden except for what? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the midst of the garden. If they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the midst of the garden, what would happen to them? They would die. All right. So there were boundaries that were set, consequences that were laid out. Very clear. I'm putting you in the midst of the garden. You may eat of anything, but if you eat of this tree, that is to say if you trespass, which is one of the reasons why we say forgive us our trespasses, if you trespass on this territory, the consequence will be death. The day that you eat of it, you shall die. Well, let's take a look at Genesis chapter three and see what happens here. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God did say, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. I've always thought it very interesting That Eve understood very clearly what the parameters were. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. And we said that that's the real sin of Eden. The sin of Eden is not that they ate of a tree. The sin of Eden was that they had a desire to be like God. To be the masters of their own fate. To be the captains of their own destiny. You will know good and evil. And so when the women saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now look at verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And then the Lord God said to the woman, What is it that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent. Now, what's interesting is that God said, On the day that you eat of the fruit of the tree, you will what? Did they die on the day that they ate of it? Ah, you see, they did not die physically. When we think of death, that's all we think of, isn't it? Physically but something else died. If you hold to the trichotomous view that you and I are made up of body, soul, and spirit, what you begin to discover is that as a consequence of their transgression, the man and the woman die in all three respects. They die spiritually speaking, that is in terms of their relationship with God. Up to this point, we're told they had intimacy with God. He walked with them, it's a wonderful description. It's very poetic language, of course. But God walks with them, we're told, in the cool of the day. Now anybody who's ever lived in Charleston in August can appreciate the notion of walking in the cool of the day. There's an old hymn, perhaps some of you are familiar with it. I come to the garden alone, while the dew is still on the roses. How many of you know that? And the voice I hear as I tarry there, the Son of God discloses. And He walks with me, and He talks with me, and He tells me I am His own. And the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. It's a wonderful depiction of this intimate relationship with God that the man and the woman enjoy. But after they eat of the tree, what's the first thing that happens? Their eyes are open, but that's not the only thing. They go and they hide themselves, don't they? In other words, that to be fully known and fully loved, that intimate relationship somehow is broken It's severed as a consequence of the fall. That relationship, that spiritual relationship, dies right there. So that when God comes, he has to look for them. That's the imagery, you see. And when he finds them, what does he say to them? Why are you hiding? Have you eaten of the tree that I told you not to eat from? And instead of being a man no pun intended, and stepping forward and saying, I ate of the tree, what does Adam say? The woman that thou gavest me. You know, we always laugh about that because we think that Adam is actually blaming the woman. But actually, he's blaming God. It's the woman you gave me. So I want you to notice, they die spiritually in terms of their relationship with God, intimacy. They also die in terms of their moral reasoning, They no longer want to take responsibility for their own actions. They do what we oftentimes do when we're accused of doing something wrong. We look for a scapegoat. The woman thou gavest me. He turns to the woman. What is it that you have done? The serpent. As you've heard me say before, the serpent didn't have a leg to stand on. I mean, so. But you see a death here, don't you? Can you see what happens as a result of the fall, as a result of that transgression? They do die. They die spiritually, their relationship with God, the only thing that made existence worthwhile. Then they die morally because they are no longer connected to God. They no longer want to take responsibility for their own actions. They blame somebody else. And ultimately what happens? They are driven out of the garden, we're told. An angel is placed there with a flaming sword, denying them access to the what? The tree of life so that they die what? Physically. Now physical death, as tragic as it is, is not the real tragedy. The real tragedy, you see, is that when you die physically, separated from God, you're separated from Him for eternity. That is what has happened to the human race. The fall of man has affected every aspect of our being. We have died. We have died spiritually in terms of our relationship with God. And because we are no longer connected to God, we are morally compromised. That's why the world is the state that we're in. And that's why we're on the brink. We can all see it. And every single one of us will one day have an inevitable appointment with it. The grave. That's why Paul says it's not a matter simply of being spiritually sick. Go back to Ephesians chapter 2. He says, but as for you, you were what? You were dead, spiritually, morally, and one day, he says, physically dead. Still up and walking around, but in terms of our relationship with God and our ability to choose the right, we are dead. Thomas Cranmer put it well. He said, whatever the heart desires, the will chooses and the mind justifies now, some people will say, well, don't we have free will? Well, Martin Luther would insist that you and I have free choice, but we do not have free will. Every aspect of who we are as human beings has been affected by sin. This is what the English reformers and the continental reformers refer to as total depravity. doesn't mean utter depravity. It doesn't mean we're as bad as we could possibly be, but it does mean that there's not a simple aspect of our Humanity, of who we are, of our character, that has not in some way been tainted or touched or affected by sin. Including our hearts. The book of Jeremiah says, The heart is deceitful above all things. Jesus, we're told, would entrust himself to no man because he knew what was in the heart of man. In other words, you and I have a heart disease, it's our heart that is corrupt. And so our heart desires things and we choose those things freely, but because the inclinations or the desires of our heart are only to do evil or sin, then the choices we make freely are always going to be what? Sinful decisions, sinful choices. You still have free choice, nobody's coercing you, but you're of course going to live out life according to your nature. I've always said, if you were to stick a lion and a lamb in the same room, what's going to happen to the lamb? Now, you can put a lion in with a lamb, and you can put in hay, and you can put in straw, and you can put in vegetables, and the lamb may eat those things, but the lion is not going to eat those things. Why? Why is he going to eat the lamb, though? Why? Because it's his nature. It's his nature. And the only way that a lion is ever going to eat hay or straw, he'll starve first. The only way he's going to do that is if he has a what? A change of nature. See, that's the problem for human beings, according to the Bible. We are spiritually dead. It is our nature only to do what? To do those things that are contrary to the will of God. Now, you can preach morality at people till the cows come home, but it won't make any difference. Why? Because, Paul says, they're not merely sick, they're dead. If somebody is sick, there's the chance that they can recover. They can hear what you're saying. But if a person is spiritually dead, can they hear you? As most of you know, I was in Buford for 17 years, and when I was ever working through a sermon or a class, I would um, always go out and walk through the churchyard. And I would try to work on my thoughts, try to organize my class or organize my sermon, whatever it was. And I can tell you, over 17 years in Buford, in that cemetery, I must have preached hundreds of sermons. And some of them were my best works, I'm going to be honest with you, they were were really remarkable. (laughs) I must have preached a hundred altar calls. And never once did anybody ever respond All those people lying out there in the churchyard, not a single one of them ever rose up and came forward just as they were. Why? Because they were dead. There's nothing that could be done. See, they were spiritually dead. Do you realize that's where we are? in terms of our relationship with God? There's nothing. You can apply any salve that you want. You can provide people with with education. You can provide people with resources. You can provide them with opportunities. But the problem you see is that if you provide all of those things to people, they cannot respond. The reason the world is the way that it is, Paul says, is because it is spiritually dead in its trespasses and its sins. Yes, people are up physically walking around, but in terms of their relationship with God they're dead and because they are dead with God they cannot make the right choices their hearts are corrupt above all things and whatever their hearts desire their will chooses and their mind will ultimately justify that is the human condition now how many of you look at that and think to yourself well that's a pretty bleak picture let's see a show of hands if you think that's a pretty bleak picture of the human condition You ain't seen nothing yet. That's what Paul goes on to say. He says it's worse than dead. He said, but as for you, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. There's the idea that Kramer was talking about. Carrying out the desires of the body and mind, but because our nature was fallen, everything we chose was in some way tainted by sin, so that we were by nature, what? Children of wrath. Now, that's a very different picture from the one you oftentimes hear today, that we're all children of God. That's what we all hear. We're all children of God, aren't we? It's a very popular notion today, but it is not a particularly biblical notion. What Paul says is that every single one of us, by virtue of our fallen nature, is a child of wrath. Now, every time I deliver a lecture like this, I get a little nervous because I know there's somebody out there thinking, oh, now please, tell me he's not going to talk about the wrath of God. Who believes in the wrath of God today? That is such an antiquated, old-fashioned idea. Nobody believes in the wrath of God today. This is an extremely unpopular notion. But I'm going to tell you something. If we're going to take the Scripture seriously, if we're going to be biblical Christians, we cannot avoid the notion of the wrath of God. In the Old Testament alone, there are over 600 passages, over 600 passages that deal with the wrath of God or the judgment of God. And at least 20 different terms that apply to the wrath of the judgment of God. 20 separate Hebrew terms. Now at this point somebody might say, well, okay. But we all know that the God of the Old Testament was the God of wrath. The God of the New Testament is the God of what? What? love and grace and mercy and forgiveness. How many of you have ever heard that? The God of the Old Testament is the God of wrath, but the God of the New Testament is the God of justice and mercy and love and compassion. That's what we've been taught. Well, I want you to understand, first of all, the early church condemned that as a heresy. So if you subscribe to that idea that there are two different gods revealed to us in Holy Scripture, that's a heretical idea. Furthermore, I think it's important to remember that while there are certainly references to God's wrath in the Old Testament, there are also references to God's wrath in the New Testament. In fact, there are more references to God's judgment in the New Testament than there is to His love, grace, or mercy. Did you know that? There are more references to God's judgment. Here we have it in Ephesians chapter 2 where Paul refers to us as being children of wrath like the rest of mankind. If you go back to Romans chapter 1, that most famous of all epistles, the Apostle Paul makes it very clear that the wrath of God is being revealed. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, what? Suppress the truth. Paul says it's not a matter of being ignorant of the truth. The problem is that mankind suppresses the truth about God and therefore the wrath of God is being revealed. The epistle to the Hebrews says precisely the same thing. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 10 for just a moment. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 16 and following. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For it says, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write it on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their lawless deeds no more. But where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. But if you read through the section that immediately precedes this, while it talks about grace and mercy here, it also talks about God's judgment, God's wrath. Now, somebody might say, well, okay, but we all know that Paul could sometimes get out of the wrong side of the bed in the morning. Paul could be a little difficult. What did Jesus have to say? about wrath and judgment. Jesus was so compassionate, so merciful, so gracious. We'll take a look at Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. Jesus has a whole series of parables here. The parable of the ten virgins. The parable of the talents. The parable of the ten virgins, you know the story, it's a... It's a great feast, a wedding feast, and the bridesmaids run out of their oil, don't they? And when they run out of their oil, they can no longer go into the house. We're told the door is shut and they are excluded. They are excluded forever. Parable of the talents, same thing. The owner of a household entrusts his servants with certain talents, a certain sum of money. They are expected to use that for his benefit. And the one that doesn't, what happens to him? We're told that he is cast into the outer darkness, in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And here's how Jesus sums up all of these parables, parables of judgment, if you read in chapter 25, verses 31 and following. And when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on His left. And the king will say to those on the right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked or clothe you? And they will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? He will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did it not to one of the least of these, you did it not to me. And the whole chapter ends with this very solemn verse, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So here's the situation, just to summarize. Summarize. I'm going to try to get through the lecture. The human condition is not one of spiritual health. That's obvious from the world in which we live. And the situation is not simply a matter of being sick. If we could just find the right salve and apply it to the wound somehow we can recover. Paul says the situation is much more serious. We are spiritually speaking dead in terms of a relationship with God as the result of the fall. Our relationship with God is broken. And as a result of our spiritual relationship being broken, our moral reasoning is broken. We have died spiritually, we are dying morally, and one day we will die physically. And unless something happens to change the status quo, you and I can never have life with God again. We are children of wrath. We are under the judgment of God. That's the picture. It is a very bleak picture. It is a hopeless picture. It couldn't get much worse. That is the situation. Now, I realize wrath is a very unpopular topic. Let me just say one final word about wrath before we move on. One of the reasons we do not like the notion of the wrath of God is because we fail to understand the character of God. We can't understand why God just can't forgive and forget like the rest of us. But you see, our only hope as human beings is that God will be true to his word. If we cannot trust God and take him at his word, there is no hope, you see, for us. Every relationship is built upon trust. When God said to the man and the woman, if you eat of the tree, you will surely die, while you and I can go back to our word and be untrue to who we are and to our character, God cannot do that. God is a God of mercy and a God of grace, but he is also a God of justice. And let's face it, folks, that's what we're hoping for in the world. We're hoping that this world which is corrupted, this world that is filled with villains, this world in which there is a great deal of injustice. We are all hoping that one day God is going to set this broken world right and justice will reign supreme. That is what we're hoping for. And so God will not go back on his word. He takes seriously this business of being God. The other thing that's the problem is this. We not only fail to understand the character of God I think we tend to think that God is oftentimes like us. When we think of the wrath of God, we think that it's something very similar to human anger. It's been said that God created us in his image, and ever since we have been trying to return the favor. When we think of a person who is wrathful, what do we think of? We think of somebody who loses their temper. We think of somebody that flies off the handle. But that's not the biblical image of God's wrath at all. I like to say that the wrath of God is probably more like an allergic reaction. There are some people, you know, that just cannot eat shellfish. It's contrary to their biological makeup. And if they eat shellfish, they have a reaction to it. Sometimes a violent reaction. Sometimes they can die from it. That's how God is with sin. You and I tend to think that sin is a small thing. But it's not a small thing. It is contrary to who God is. And when he comes into contact with sin, it's like he has an allergic reaction. That's why Paul says the wrath of God is being poured out against a sinful and fallen humanity that what? Suppresses the truth. And so here again is the situation. You and I are not merely sick. We're spiritually dead. We do not have a relationship with God. It has been severed. Morally speaking, we are compromised. The things that we choose, the things that we desire are not the things of God. The very things I want to do, Paul says, I do not do. And the very things I hate, these are the things that I find myself doing. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me. How many of you can relate to that? The very things you want to do, you don't do. The very things you hate, these are the things you find yourself doing. That's the human condition. And as a result of that, we are under God's wrath. Our sin enrages his wrath. We're not children of God, we're children of wrath. Now that is a radical situation. And a radical situation requires what? A radical solution. It requires a radical remedy. And that is precisely what God provides. First John says that Jesus Christ became the propitiation for our sins. There's a famous scholar at Cambridge University named C.H. Dodd who used to argue in the RSV that the word propitiation should be translated expiation. But if you're reading out of the English Standard Version, you'll see that they've gone back to the older word propitiation. Expiation means a covering. And Dodd said that's what Jesus did on the cross. His death covered our sins. That's true. But the actual word, and you find this in the 1928 prayer book, in the Comfortable Words, is a propitiation for our sins. What does the word propitiate mean? It means to turn aside wrath. It's as though the wrath of God is here, and our sin stands between the wrath of God and us. And what Jesus Christ does as he steps into the firing line. By his death on the palm of the cross, Jesus steps between our sinfulness and God's wrath, and on the cross, bears the punishment that you and I deserve. That's why he's described as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in Jewish tradition, in the first century, what you did is you would bring your lamb to the priest to be sacrificed, a lamb for your sins. You would place your hand on the head of that lamb, symbolically translating or transmitting your sin, your guilt to that lamb. And then the priest, while you placed your hand on the lamb's head, the priest would come with a knife and cut the lamb's throat. And the blood would be poured out on the floor. And what that represented in that sacrifice was the wages of sin is death. Sin is a serious matter in the eyes of God, but God, who is rich in mercy, is willing to allow you to transmit your guilt, and your sin to this innocent animal. And in that, the innocent dies for the guilty, and the wrath of God is satisfied. But the problem, of course, with that Old Testament tradition was that the death of an animal is not the same as the death of a human being. We're made in the image of God. And if the sins were ever to be done, purged away, a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice, oblation, and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world, we needed a new lamb. And Jesus Christ came, and he was the Lamb of God who took upon himself our punishment so that by his stripes, you and I might be healed, that the broken relationship might be restored, and so that God could do that which was necessary in order for us to have a relationship with him again. And what was that? To do for us spiritually what he did for Lazarus physically. Remember the story of Lazarus? Who'd been in the tomb for four days when Jesus arrived there in Bethany. And the sister sat outside the tomb crying for Lazarus to come forth, but he could not come forth. Why couldn't he come forth? Because he was dead. He was physically dead. And so Jesus had to come, and Jesus had to make him alive even when he was dead. And unless Jesus did that for, what did Lazarus contribute to his resurrection? Nothing. Why? Because he was dead. This this is not hard stuff. I know it may seem that way, but this is not difficult stuff. Why didn't Lazarus come out when everybody called him? Because he was dead. God had to make him what? Alive. And once he did that, the miracle took place behind the stone. Jesus said, come forth. And he came out. That is what God has to do for us, spiritually speaking. You and I cannot pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. Society cannot fix itself. Why? Because we're dead. And we're under the wrath of God. And yet Jesus Christ came in, took the punishment upon himself, offered himself as the Lamb of God for the sins of the whole world. And now that the price Paid, God, who is rich in mercy, can make us what? Alive again. Isn't that exactly what Paul is saying here in Ephesians 2? But as for you, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Verse 4, the most wonderful verse in the whole chapter, but God. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places. You have been saved by grace. What is grace? Now you've been with me two years, what's grace? God's undeserved, unearned favor. Why are we saved by grace? Why does it have to be by grace? Why does it have to be by grace? Because we're dead. And dead people can't do anything. But God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive. Even when we were dead. That's why it is by grace that you have been saved. Not by works, Paul says, so that no man may boast. And that is why, in the words of Rabbi Zacharias, outside the cross of Jesus Christ, there is no hope for the world. All the education all the opportunities, all of the resources, as important as they are, they are not enough. They are not the cure for what ails us. Outside the cross of Jesus Christ, there is no hope in this world. The cross and the resurrection at the core of the gospel is the only hope for humanity. So wherever you go, ask God for wisdom on how to get that gospel in even in the toughest situations in life. How many of you think you're pretty bad? Be honest. I got news for you. You're worse than you think you are. (laughs) But, but, but God who is rich in mercy, made you alive. And for that we say, thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for the riches of your grace and your mercy. We are not just sick. We are dead in our trespasses, in our sins. And if we have come into a relationship with you, Lord Jesus, it's because you, you made us alive and when we were dead. And you've seated us in those heavenly places with Christ Jesus. Having given up everything for us, Lord, we pray that you would so fill us with your Holy Spirit that we would have the courage to give up everything for you, knowing that everything that our hearts desire has already been achieved and won for us. Grant us the grace, Lord, to now live for you. In Jesus' name.